Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of Wake Up Call podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a guest. Uh, his name is Harry, other called as the Champagne Socialist on his social media platforms. He has almost 140,000 followers on TikTok. He is also a podcaster at Not To Get Political, which you'll find on Spotify and I'm pretty sure other audio platforms, but Harry will tell us all about that later. He is based in the UK, um, he does political and media commentary, and today we want to talk to him about the United Kingdom, its political situation, the cost of living crisis, and his internet career. So welcome Harry on the show. Hello, thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. So our first question is really basic, is just for you to tell us a bit more about yourself, about how you started your internet career what you specialize in, and what are your goals moving to the future? Okay, um, so I'm 23 years old. Um, my TikTok account started during my university degree um, in my second year as part of a module. Um, basically, that was kind of the thing during a locked I studied during the pandemic. And that was the thing during the pandemic. You either got TikTok or you got COVID, and I got both. And I know which one I'd rather, <laughs> which I'd rather have. Um, and so, yeah, it basically started as a university project for a module. Um, and then basically it was called Politics in Action. And typically what you would have done on that, on that module is you would have gone out into the wider community. I studied in Leicester, which is in the Midlands in the UK. So it's about 30 minutes from Birmingham via the train, um, just to give you an idea of the geography. Um it's a very like mixed area. Uh, there's you know levels of there's quite a bit of poverty, uh, but there's also quite affluent areas as well, like Leicestershire. Um, so yeah, no. Um, what you typically would have done in that module is you maybe would have worked for a local authority, so with the council, uh, perhaps worked with a homeless charity because there are quite high levels of homelessness in Leicester, and they do a lot of really good work there. Or maybe a food bank. We have a lot of food banks in this country, actually more food banks than McDonald's, which is quite depressing. Um, and we'll get into that later. And um, but we couldn't do that because of the uh, lockdown restrictions in place. So they were like, well, you can use social media and stuff to to engage with politics. And I decided to talk about politics on TikTok, uh, British politics in particular. And um, I started the account. My account had maybe like 300 followers um, at the start of the project in October 2020. And then by the time I finished, I had around 10,000, I think. And then basically... I just decided to continue it and now it's become my career and um, I'm very, I'm very grateful for it. Um, so yeah, I mainly focus on British politics. Um, sometimes looking at US politics when it feels relevant to talk about sometimes issues within Europe. Um, so when like Brexit is in the conversation, you bring up, you talk about uh, the European Union, for example. Um, I'm a big football fan as well. I support Liverpool um, and England and the Netherlands because those are my two countries. Um so I started talking about social issues within football. So I covered the, there was a rumor going around about a player called Ashraf Hakimi, who had apparently put his wealth in his mother's name in order to avoid giving his um, ex-wife half in a settlement. That was all bollocks, to put it politely. And I basically did a video explaining why it was bollocks and, and all of that, which was met with like good reception. But there were some people, I basically like pissed off half of Morocco, which wasn't a good idea. Um, <laughs> and then I'm trying to think what else. Um, there's another case with another footballer called Ben Mendy, who was accused by 13 individual women of uh, rape, and he was found not guilty uh, the other week. 
and I was basically explaining how like innocent doesn't like not guilty doesn't mean innocent and that sort of thing. So yeah, there's a lot of issues to cover um, within British politics and within yeah, my other interests as well. So yeah. So what it seems to me is like you're increasingly um, becoming a source of news for people rather than rather than a commentary source. When you're when you have that sort of responsibility, how do you take steps to ensure that what you're reporting is accurate, and how do you sort through all the like you said, like the, the rubbish. Yeah, I mean, it's quite flattering that people would see me as a news source because I'm heavily biased. I don't feel like I'm the best, like, accurate... I, I, I don't know, because I'm going to interpret a story through, like, a very particular lens. I can't... You can't always both sides issues. When you have issues when it comes to immigration, for example, or trans rights, you can't both sides it, really, particularly with the latter issue. You know, trans rights are human rights, and anyone who says otherwise can go fuck themselves um but with um i think yeah the the key thing for me is always like check your sources what what sources are you using read multiple sources read multiple um articles on the same topic to give you an idea of actually what's going on um don't always fall for the headline because it can always be really misleading so if, i'll give an example um there were leading british newspapers that ran stories about um prison barges that have been set up for refugees and asylum seekers arriving in the uk and they were saying that the people on those uh, boats were getting access to festivals and um other like cultural experiences um and because obviously government money is taxpayer money implying that it was taxpayer money basically funding trips to music festivals for refugees actually what was happening it, it was charities that were providing charities who weren't receiving taxpayer money providing that opportunity for refugees and asylum seekers so it's always good to like read into it and make sure that actually what's being reported and there is a duty of care because as you've said if people do see me as a news source and that's very flattering um you know you do have that duty of care to provide information that to the best of your knowledge is accurate and um and accurate and truthful um so yeah and and always i would always say apologize if you get it wrong if you've said something that's wrong um, or that's been really badly perceived. And actually, when you look back on it and go, yeah, I understand why people thought that way, just apologise. Because at the, end of the di- at the end of the day, people either accept your apology or they don't. Um, and, you know, you just have to do right by yourself and everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that, in general, being in a public eye is something that you got to keep in mind, is that people are looking to you as a, some authority. And if if you screw up, just... Say I screwed up. Don't make a big deal about it. And, and yeah, exactly. Move on. I'll give you an example. Um, there's a case in the UK at the moment um, regarding a woman called Shamima Begum, um, who, when she was a teenager, joined Daesh, which is another uh, name for Islamic State. For your view, a few listeners who aren't aware. Um, and I was talking about it, and I said something really off colour, where I basically just like lock her away, throw her away for life. I thought she should come back to the UK to stand trial, but I think. You know, she's guilty of joining a terrorist organization, but the circumstances in which she was in which she joined it is up for debate. And that should be sorted out in a court of law. And people weren't happy with what I'd said. And when I reflected back on it, I was like, hey, you know what? I understand why people um, were annoyed and angry. And so, yeah, I just apologized. And, you know, it said, yeah, you know what? I understand why. And I've looked more into it. And I apologize for those of you that were offended. And you, you just own up to it. That is the the key thing to do. Just admit your mistakes. That's the only thing you can do. Yeah, totally. I agree. Uh, And another thing I wanted to ask you a bit before moving into UK politics is, 
you know, there are so many podcasts out there. There are so many content creators. And it's so nice to see a person that managed to become more popular to actually be able to even uphold themselves in a way financially through doing their work. It's so awesome. So, you know, do you think that, like, how did you do it? How do you think, do you think luck is involved in it? Have you had support networks? Yeah, I mean, luck is a big part of it. You know, it's the TikTok algorithm. One of the good things about TikTok really is, Leslie, you know the idea of like 15 minutes of fame? Um, The TikTok algorithm really... I, I think definitely when I first started, it kind of upholds that because, you know, it's kind of an equal opportunity and you've just got to make your video and your content as attractive and interesting as possible. So for me, it's like, you know, use an interesting tagline, get direct to the point. Don't don't be boring, basically. A topic that might be really dull, you have to make as interesting as possible and try and engage people. Um, one of the things I've often done is I often start with, so you might have seen, and, you know, trying and get say to the you, watch this, engage with this that I've put together, that I've spent about three hours putting together. I spent a lot of time doing this. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just trying to make it as interesting as possible. I mean, when I first started, I, I thought the market was actually quite saturated, to be honest. I started in October 2020. I remember, like, there was this one guy's account that I was watching. It's on, like, 30,000 followers. And I was looking at it, oh, my God, that's so cool. And then within a year, I'd surpassed him, and then I'd surpassed loads of other people. And it's like... I don't know. It's quite cool, but yeah, it is. It is. It is quite, get quite weird that I have to like figure out. Oh, I still. I actually do this. Um, in terms of monetizing the content, that is through um, ad work and uh, producing content for other for other media outlets as well. So I was working with a group called Byline Times, which is an independent media outlet here in the UK, um, and I was producing. I was turning their articles into TikTok content and I made money doing that. I also did newspaper handouts for them, which brought in income as well. Um, And I've also worked with The Body Shop, which is an international uh, cosmetics company, which is very ethical, does a lot of political activism. And I've worked with those guys on a couple of occasions. And so, yeah, the thing for me is I know people do it. They have like Patreon and Ko-Fi. I don't have anything like that. And the reason I don't have anything like that is because I don't feel comfortable taking money from my followers i don't feel like given the issues that i'm covering like say with poverty the cost of living crisis that i can turn around to people who are watching my content who might be affected by those issues and essentially have something that's like yeah pay me like five ten pounds a month because my business model works for me and i understand other people have those schemes like they may not be in the same position as i am so they have to use schemes like that and i don't pass judgment on the majority of people that do those schemes Granted, I do think some people's schemes do take the piss. I think if you're charging people £40 a month and the only thing they're really getting back is like a follow on socials, that is that is kind of taking the piss. Um, you know, follow people or don't follow people. Like £40 is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, no, I my model works for me and I'm very happy for it. And people are engaging. And also... A lot of the stuff that I cover, it's all it's all free to access. I also don't feel like I produce anything that I can put a price tag on at this point. Maybe when that comes along, I will. Um, but at this point, a lot of the stuff, all the sources I'm using are free to access. Um, and well, the majority of them are. Um, I have a Telegraph subscription, which is um, a leading British newspaper that I used in order to produce their articles. No, not I don't produce articles for them to read their articles and take stuff and screenshot it and whatnot and put it into my videos. Um, so yeah, I you know I I have my ways of doing it and I'm very sort of happy with the way that I do it. 
All right, let's let's move on into the nitty gritty of this. You're obviously an, a bit of an expert in the UK politics scene, and for us across the Nobody's pond, an expert. Nobody's an expert, but I'm blessed regardless, an expert, an expert among the three of us <laughs> in this room, Virtually in this in this, yeah. in this virtual <laughs> Zoom meeting room. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just seeing some crazy stuff coming out of the UK right now. I'm reading opinion articles saying that the US that the UK should treat itself like a developing country because it's not in fact a rich country and they should embrace um economic models that have worked for developing countries. Um some scary stuff. Yeah, it's been to say the least. It's been a wild like particularly so the current government that we've got in charge, the Conservatives, they've been in charge since two thousand and ten, so for the last thirteen years. Um they came into power a couple of years after the financial crash in 2008. Um, they always argue that they inherited a shit economy, um, shit state of affairs. So they needed to take drastic action in order to repair it. What they did, and I, and I we're, we're kind of, and it, basically what they did explains a lot of the issues we face now. What they did was they cut, they implemented austerity measures, which basically meant they cut funding to local governments and local authorities um, and slashed um, healthcare budgets, uh, transport budgets, basically any budget that they could slash, they slashed it. Police as well, which is quite ironic when you hear people on the right in this country complaining about leftists arguing to defund the police. And you have a government that has cut 20,000 police officers off the street since 2010. Um, and you, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, pot, pot kettle really. Um, so yeah, austerity has been a big part. It's taken the lives of 330,000 people uh, between 2012 to 2019. The University of Glasgow did a study that found that 330,000 people um, had died as a result of policies that our government championed. Um, so and actually that guy, George Osborne, who started those policies, kind of like the, the father of austerity in the UK, um, he at his wedding, somebody chucked orange confetti over him and that was seen as a protest. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah, and, that was um, the people... Just Stop Oil people, right? So, yeah, no, this was... is the thing, right? So Just Stop Oil said it, though, because Just Orange Confetti has kind of become synonymous with Just Stop Oil. Right, Just Stop yeah. Oil didn't claim responsibility for it. They said it wasn't anything to do with them. They put it mm. out on their socials. Okay. Um, they posted the clip, but then they later did a statement saying that they weren't involved with it whatsoever. Um, Just Stop Oil is another thing that we can get into but yeah they but, but the one running. the one of the ashes was just stop oil right oh with the with george osborne with the with the cricket match yeah so just stop yeah, oil that, have done okay. like, yeah, so, yeah so cricket they've disrupted the cricket the rugby wimbledon they've disrupted a lot of events and i'm i'm quite i'm supportive of what they do i wasn't initially about a couple of years back when they first started like groups like just stop oil and insulate britain kind of were on the up because of their their tactics so they were like so just insulate britain which was campaigning to get homes in britain insulated basically to help bring down heating bills and also yeah. to help the environment um which is kind of ironic when you look at people's energy bills right now um and people were like slagging them off for the way that they were protesting the thing is like what i will say about those groups is they are not there to be liked they are there to highlight a very uncomfortable reality and that is that our reality isn't good it's in a shit state you know our planet is literally on fire right now our energy bills are through the roof and action has to be taken in order to address those issues um and the reason that they protest in the way that they do is to basically get people talking about those issues 
you know, people say, well, I would support Just Stop Oil if they didn't inconvenience the general public. But if they didn't inconvenience the general public, we wouldn't be hearing about them. They disrupt conferences for Shell and BP. Um, they target government buildings. They spray them with orange paint um, to raise awareness for the fact that, you know, the British government is still issuing new oil and gas licenses when they acknowledge that there's a climate, that, that there's an issue with the climate. Issuing new oil and gas licenses does not tackle the climate, does not, is not an effective um, or practical solution um and so they draw they draw awareness of that they're not there to be liked um that as i said they're there to highlight an uncomfortable reality so when they inconvenience people someone's saying yeah we're inconveniencing you now but like imagine what when climate change is uh, literally at our doors what's the what, what are you going to do then like you know you're going to feel you're going to be inconvenienced then so you might as well we might as well be taking action now to at least try and stop the process it will probably consume us all but you'd like to be seen to be doing something Maybe I'm a bit more of an optimist than that, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, so my mum lives in Greece, and there's like all sorts of issues going on in Greece. You've probably seen all the wildfires yeah, and everything. Yeah. Now, a lot of them is started by arson, but it shouldn't be as hot over there. Like, obviously, yeah. it's like a very traditionally hot country, but it should not be as hot as it actually is. Um, and climate change is to do with that. And our summers are only going to get warmer. And yeah, no, it's it is scary. This this is the thing, you know. In 2015, many governments signed the Paris Climate Accords to so basically say, you know, we are going to do better and we are going to address the climate crisis. And basically, governments one by one have been shirking their responsibilities. So all the protest groups, uh, all the climate protest groups that we see around the world, helping to draw attention, they are basically trying to hold their government to account, which is what all democratic governments should be held to account. Yeah, for sure. And I think in general, you know, all kind of social change that was big, if we look at the suffragette movement, uh, I'm pretty sure, pretty confident that during their protests, people died. But when we look back at that today, we don't really, you know, it's sad, but like it was needed. We don't feel bad for it. The way that a lot of these protest movements are taught at schools, it's almost like, oh, well, people ask nicely. And they got it and got it done. Like with the suffragettes movement, it's almost taught like women got the vote. This is always the key thing is like they never they just thought it's like women got the vote. No, it was like women over 30, mainly middle class women over 30 that got the vote. Um, And there is the there is the argument that the suffragettes movement and the women at the forefront of it basically didn't want to be seen as being like other women. They wanted to be on the same social status as, say, working class men who had been given the votes in the 1800s. Um, but yeah, no, as, as you've said, the suffragettes were throwing themselves in front of horses. They were attacking government buildings. They were chaining themselves. They were going on hunger strike in prisons uh, in order to raise awareness. It was only when the war started and they joined uh, the labour force, providing for the country and um, assisting it when it when it was needed, that their value was really acknowledged um, when really it should have happened a lot sooner. In your TikTok, I recently saw that you were talking about healthcare in the UK and especially um, how some people are sick with Victorian era diseases. So what's happening there? So, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. So basically with the basically healthcare in this country, we have the NHS, which was created in the 1940s after the Second World War and probably one of the best um the, the, new, the Labour government between 1945 and 1951 implemented many policies and uh, infrastructure that changed people's lives for the better and it saved millions of lives. So the NHS and the welfare state were two examples of that. The NHS is 
um, universal healthcare, and it's you know free to use whenever. You don't have to sign like a, you don't have to provide a credit card or some form of payment or to in order to access it. It's always great when you see people um, who come from overseas and like they they need to use like a, a, an ambulance or something, and they're like, oh, do we have enough money for it? It's like no, no it's free to use, mate. You, you don't have to you don't have to worry. Um, but yeah, no, um, with those diseases. So there was a report, I believe, in the Times that said, found that last year eleven thousand cases of scurvy rickets and malnutrition uh people with those cases were admitted to hospital um to give you an idea like scurvy they figured out how to solve scurvy in the 1700s and basically it's lack of, lack of vitamin c uh and scur- uh, rickets is caused by lack of vitamin d and malnutrition is basically people aren't eating because people can't afford to eat uh the price of basics has gone up so high uh, when you think of like you know needs uh needs and wants economics um, yeah, the price of needs has gone up, price of the brick going up, and um, people can't afford the brick. Um, and essentially, yeah, no, it's a shit situation. We have, so in, for example, we have uh, the Trussell Trust operate, I think, 1,400 food banks. And that number's been going up over the last 13 years. In 2010, we had 35 food banks operated by the Trussell Trust under the last Labour government. In 2013, there were 650 three years into the coalition. Um, and by 2020, uh, there were 1,200. And over the pandemic, there's been an increase of 200. Now, a lot of the people, now people might be saying, well, surely you can just go to food banks and access, you know, fresh fruits and veg. The issue now is, is that food banks are rejecting donations of fresh fruits and veg because the people accessing food banks cannot afford to heat that fruits and veg. So the veg, for example, so that root veg like potatoes, people aren't getting potatoes or say carrots because they can't afford to heat it. That um, you can eat carrots raw, but with like uh, potatoes, for example, people cannot afford to, to heat potatoes. We are a G7 country that should not be happening. There is no way in a country as rich and prosperous as ours that people should be re- rejecting potatoes because they can't afford to heat it. It's a damning indictment of how far we have fallen in this country and also like the gaps in the the gap in inequality has grown um you know we have a housing crisis as well you know i think a lot of people in my generation we've kind of accepted the fact we probably won't ever own our own homes which when you think of like the idea of like you know the capitalist dream you know like you work you get you work hard you get you get home you start a family and then the cycle continues itself until you die um and yeah, no, it's just looking increasingly likely that, you know, you're going to have to rent and the fucking rental market in this country is a shit state. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's especially unbelievable that this is, I mean, sure, it seems like the UK is being hit hard among G7 countries, but it's happening all over the world. Canada, we've got a crazy housing crisis, top 10 most expensive, three of them are Canadian cities. And if you think about how expansive our, our land is, is the second biggest country in the world, there's no way that we should be in a crisis of housing. I do a lot of work in the, in the nonprofit sort of food bank sector. And in there, it's the same thing. The rates of use have gone up exponentially and it's just keeping on go- growing higher and higher. And it feels like we're, we're at a tipping point and it seems like the UK has reached um, that tipping point. Yeah, it's, so we have like 706,000 people using food banks in this country. And that is also a result of, uh, of policies implemented by people like George Osborne. So when people protest their wedding and it's like, this guy is a mass murderer, 
like you know come on let's let's be real here um but yeah no it's it's a weird one because everyone's always seems to like the you know like when you're boiling pasta and like sometimes if you leave the lid on like the water might rise too high and start like spewing over the top um i feel like people seem to think that we're in that source of position the thing is there's so much complacency in this country a thing you will often hear amongst kind of like liberal minded people is this like idea of like oh we should be more like the french we should protest like the french um and now the french society is entirely different to british society and the 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 riots and protests that you see in france is like on a 10-15 year cycle where basically it shit hits the fan and it all kicks off in the uk there's plenty of there's been plenty of opportunities where we should have been kicking off but it's almost like um you know oh, I'll jump in if you jump in type situation. Imagine like when your kid's at a pool, like, oh, if you jump in first, I'll jump in after you. Let's jump at the same time. Oh, no, we're not going to jump. That's essentially what's been going on here in the UK. Uh, So there are plenty of moments where we should have all been kicking off, but nobody wants to kind of start it. Um, The last time we had like real mass demonstrations, I would say was probably the London riots in 2011. And there've been plenty of marches to try and raise awareness, but it's never like kicks, kicks off off. There's never been like, you know, several days of unrest, not since 2011. And even then, like the propaganda machine that was kicking off at the time, it was only when I would have been about 15 years old. The riots happened when I was 11. It was only when I was 15 that I actually found out the cause of the riots, which was because (laughs) the Met Police had killed Mark Duggan. And basically, I kind of just thought it was just people that just wanted to riot and loot. Um, And it was only when I was 15 in a sociology class that I actually found out the real reason that those riots had happened. Um, And you think, well, if that's kind of how effective that machine is, when you're like 11 years old and when you're a kid and it's still working on people to this day. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the issues and, you know, they seem so multifaceted and so hard to fix. So what is your take on it? What what do you think should be done in the UK apart from protesting? What should the government do? So I think the key thing is basically it's political choice. You know, a lot of the issues. So for example, austerity wasn't needed. It was an, it was a political choice. It was a political choice to force millions of people into poverty um, and to reduce living standards. We have the, the UK has the lowest living standards on record since 19, since the 1940s, 50s, when the records began, um, which should not be happening. We should be getting better as, as we get older. Um, again, it's, um, as I've said, it's a political choice. Um, so one of the things that people are discussing at the moment is that the Labour Party, our official opposition, the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, the other day said that he wasn't uh, going to scrap the two-child cap on benefits. So basically in this country, you can claim um, welfare payments on only two children. Um, any children after that, you can't claim You can't claim anything on. The only exceptions is if the child is um, physically or mentally handicapped or if the child in question is conceived by uh, basically by rape and because of how invasive and personal the the um the way you have to you have to report that to the department of work and pensions and because of how invasive that procedure is a lot of women um don't actually uh, file that because they don't want to go through that process you know it's traumatic enough going through something like that to have to then report it in order to justify um getting money to help raise your child it's really daunting they estimate that to scrap that policy, it would cost 1.4 billion, um, which sounds like a lot. But actually, when you look at it as a percentage of government spending, it's really not that much. 
Um, and by immediately scrapping it, 250,000 children would be lifted out of poverty and it would reduce poverty for another 850,000 children. Um, being in poverty, it, I mean, I don't know, have any experience of it. My mother does because uh, she grew up in poverty. And, you know, when she sees the stories that are going out at the moment, she finds it really difficult because she knows what's that, what that's like. And she can't imagine, you know, she, she suffered with that in the 70s and 80s. Um, to have to deal with that now in 2023, it's completely insane. Um, she can't, she can't process it. And I don't know what it's truly like, you know, I've lived, I've, I've grown up very comfortable. Um, most of, you know, my mother's probably my biggest influence on my politics because of her upbringing and, and what she's witnessed and seen. Um, but yeah, no, I think it, it, at the end of the day, it just comes back to political choice. Our asylum system, for example, um, has been broken deliberately by this government in order to stoke a culture war. Um, they are they they know that in the UK we love nothing more than to demonise immigrants. Um, you know, you probably heard the things. You know, you have it in Canada, I would imagine as well, um, and in the Netherlands as well, where you where you're studying at the moment. You probably heard a lot about sort of builders and all those guys talking about Moroccans, for example. In the UK, it's you know people fleeing wars that we've had a hand in starting, um, which is often quite ironic. Um, that we're so anti-immigration. That being said, our country relies heavily on immigration. They've broken the asylum system because, you know, they need something to distract us from the issues that are going on. And if they can say, we've got a solution to a problem that we've solved, people will listen. Um, and it is working. The illegal migration bill was passed the other day. Um, and it's a really, it's a fucking awful bill. Um, and it basically shirks our international responsibilities and they brag about it. They don't care when people can point out and be like, you know, you guys are breaching international law. They're like, so we don't care. Um, and they, they get away with it every single time. But yeah, again, I, I don't actually know what is going to change much because I, I reckon this government that we currently have, they won't be the next government by the next election. By the next election, we'll probably have a Labour government in charge. That being said, I don't actually know what they are going to do that is going to really make any difference um, because they, the, 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 the thing we're always hearing is like, there's no money left. They're basically insulting the British public by pretending that a government's budget is around like a household budget. It's like, no, you guys have finite resources. Fucking you're, you're a government. Your job is to create wealth. Go out there and create some. You know, the Kim Kardashian thing where she's like, get up and work. Nobody wants to work these days. That's basically <laughs> what people are screaming at this government. Like, give give people some hope. We've had 13 years of people being bogged down um, in all sorts of shite. Like, come on, give people some hope and actually, you know, deliver on that. I'd also like to have some insight on what the youth political discourse situation is like in uh, the UK. Are young people engaged in this? Obviously, a lot of this cost of living stuff is going to affect people that are around, you know, our age in our early 20s quite a bit. But at the same time, I don't know if this is the case in the UK, but despite elections having the most impact on young people in Canada, they are also the ones that don't actually give a shit and don't turn up to vote. What's the situation like um, in the UK? So... It's interesting because one, I'd say one of the only two good things this government has done, the first one was legalising gay marriage in 2013. Um, and the second is getting more people engaged in politics, not because they have been doing good, but because they've been so bad, people have actually started taking notice of the shit that's been going on. I became first became politically engaged in 2015, 2016. 
uh, when the 2015 general election happened and then uh, EU referendum in 2016. Um, I'd say young people are predominantly left wing in this country, more sort of progressive thinking. It's why if you, you you'll probably if you notice with, say, like the sort of pro trans rights movement, um, it is like spearheaded predominantly by sort of young people um who are much more accepting to uh, I'll rephrase that young people are, tend to be more accepting of new ideas and you know particularly surrounding like uh trans rights for example trans issues um in terms of that idea of optimism i think that's predominantly coming from young people um and this is the thing it doesn't feel like the two main political parties at this point are essentially arguing over votes from people in the north of england um so in 2019 you have like what was called the Red Wall, which referred to like traditional labour seats. So these are working class areas, staunch labour. The idea that they would ever vote Tory in their lives would cause their grandfathers to turn in their graves. Well, there was a lot of rolling going on in the graveyards in 2019 because a lot of those seats switched to the Conservatives. Now, that, that that is due mainly to three reasons. The first one was Brexit, because a lot of those areas voted for Brexit. Um and it's also a, a protest vote in terms of with austerity, which had, at that point, six years in, they completely decimated those areas. Also going back to deindustrialization in the 80s. Uh, the second reason was because the government and party was being headed by a guy called Boris Johnson, who you might have heard of. Um, he promised basically this thing called levelling up, which was where he was going to make those areas as prosperous as the south of England is. What you had in the 80s was basically the... Areas were, were heavily big in industry, so mining, for example, um, big factory work like tailoring, pot- pottery, um, that sort of stuff. Um, the industry got stripped out of those of those communities and then got um, outsourced overseas, where it was cheaper to produce and, and import, other than actually having it built in the country. And then the third reason was because um, the Labour leader at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't very popular. Um, he wasn't seen as well and some of that was self-inflicted by himself but then i think other stuff was the press were were actually very being the leader of the opposition is very difficult because you are given a constant hard time but jeremy corbyn did receive a lot of with the benefit of hindsight because i wasn't really that pro corbyn in 2019 um he was he did receive like an unfair run at the stick but yeah basically the labor party wants to try and win back those uh, seats win back those votes so they are trying to push policies that will appeal to them that appeal to those people also at that point shirking or basically ignoring the concerns that young people have that's how it feels and i say that as a member of the labor party there are times where it feels like you know our concerns aren't really being listened to or being acknowledged and it's like um guys we're still here we are the future like please give us some help um yeah, no, it is difficult. Um, and it's like, you know, what do we do, really? I feel like I've said a whole load of nothing. I've said a lot, but nothing. Really, yeah. No, I mean, I don't think it's nothing. You've said a lot. You've given us a very broad overview of what life is like in the UK. Yeah. I mean, what? It's a 40-minute podcast. It's not like we can get into (laughs) really in-depth analysis of the UK situation. But I think... Yeah, I mean, it's like 13 pushing on... I mean, yeah, going back, like, post-war. A lot of the issues we see here in the UK, they link the the knock-on... Like, the policies that are implemented in, like, the 70s and 80s, like, we are still feeling the effects of them today. Um, 
so it is quite difficult. Actually, the last thing that we wanted to to touch on was um, something that was in the news lately, and it was Sunak talking about limiting, quote-unquote, like, low-value university degrees. This is the last thing we want to touch on, because I think it's particularly, I mean, most of our audience, if we look at it as university students, and um, what constitutes a low-value degree, and how exactly do they plan on limiting it? So this is the thing. There is no such thing as a low value degree. And anyone who, and this is what's interesting. If you were to ask people at university, do you think there are low value degrees being taught at your uni? They would probably say yes. But if you were to ask them, do you think that your degree is low value? They would say no. This is the Boris Johnson. This is the Boris Johnson question that was, that he asked, right? Yeah. And this is the thing. This is, I mean, Boris Johnson, a man who is well known in this country for lying his ass off at any given point, you know, a stop clock is right two times a day. And he was right in that sense. Um, and essentially, the, the crackdown, it's, it's it, nothing is actually really going to happen because essentially this government will not be in power come in the next two years. Um, I can't see them scrapping it. Rishi Sunak is someone who knows the value, the, the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Um, and that's kind of how he's gone throughout his entire life. He views degrees in terms of like, what's the earning potential of this degree? The thing is, a degree is much more than that. A degree is an experience, the skills that you gain from it. So, you know, for example, I did a degree in international relations and politics. People might argue that that's a pretty useless degree. But the skills I gained from it, the connections that I gained, those are connections that I still use to this day. Um, And without my degree, there are many things that I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have the confidence to do certain things. I wouldn't have the confidence to talk on podcasts the way that I do. I wouldn't have started my TikTok account if i hadn't done my degree because that might do my degree enabled me to do that make that account and make it as successful as it has been so there is no such thing as a low value or useless degree every degree has value you know if we're going to base everything on earning potential well you know nurses don't earn that much in this country we need nurses um a junior doctor i calculated the i think that a junior doctor showed their pay slip and after taxing i think i didn't make about 1,700 pounds, which you think if you're saving people's lives and like you're only getting like 1.7k a, m- a month, like that's fucking insane. They also found that like a parking meter in an NHS car park makes more an hour than a junior doctor does. Like that, that is insane. It, it's completely should not be the case. Um, so yeah, again, the whole idea of low value degrees, it's essentially just a cultural point. If you go to a British pub, you will hear someone at some point in the night talk about low value degrees, who will say that they went to the University of Life and did their masters at the University of Hard Knocks. You know, it's, it's just stuff to get people angry, and get people distracted. That, that's the whole thing they're doing now. They're essentially, you know, going, Oh, look at that, trying to make everyone forget all the other shit that they've done. It's, um, it's trying to mend, you know, trying to mend something that's not broken. And you know what? Degrees, as I said, it's an experience and there is no such thing as a low value degree. Yeah, that's a perfect way to end this episode. It was really enjoyable to listen to you talk about the UK. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And I think me, me included and our viewers definitely gained a lot of knowledge. So if we want to know more, Please tell us where to find you on all platforms. 
Okay, so my main platform is my TikTok account, um, The Champagne Socialist. Um, please uh, sort of follow me and follow me on other platforms. Um, if you go on my, my link tree is there, so all my other my links are there. Um, please uh, look at my podcast, Not To Get Political, which you can find on Spotify and YouTube. Um, we've been going strong for nearly three months now. and We're, we're gaining uh, hundreds of listener, uh, hundreds of, of followers and, and listeners. I think listenership is now in the thousands, which I'm really happy about. Um, and our clips on socials as well doing really well um, thank you to the support for, for that everyone that everyone is showing I really appreciate it um, yeah that's where you, that's where you can find me and um, you know please listen to young voices please stay informed and um, yeah that's I think that's the best thing I can do um, that I can say and do but no please thank, thank you so much for having me on I really appreciate it thank you and thank you everyone for listening to episode 29 you know where to find us on Instagram TikTok and all audio platforms at wake up call podcast